I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is the subterranean, Jeff Goad. Hello. And this week, we have a very special guest, podcaster, poet, and game writer, Julian Burnick. Hello. Hi. Hello, Julian. <laughs> Hi, Julian. Thanks for so, having Ju- me. Absolutely. Love, love having people here. Julian, can you tell me a little bit about your history with gaming and uh, Appendix N in particular? Uh, absolutely. I um, well, I've been a I'm an old guy, so I've been gaming since about '83 when I was uh, 13 years old or something. So I started, of course, with uh, advanced D and D back then, and uh, didn't really know anything about Appendix N at the time. But somehow I did get a my hands on a copy of uh, Fritz Leiber's, you know, Fofford and Mouser books at the time. Of course, I was reading Tolkien at the time as well, and. Uh, that's pretty. That was my introduction to PenXN, both from a gaming and um, literature perspective. Uh, I've been a pretty rabid gamer ever since. Had a few dry spots, but uh, have done a lot of D and D playing and branched out into some other stuff. But of course, uh, eventually found my way back to old school games around 2009, and eventually to DCC was an original uh, playtester and reviewer of the Beta Rules back in uh, 2011 or something, I think. So it's been a really fun ride and I've just had a blast with that. I actually, in a weird way, found myself to Appendix N kind of in the late 90s when I got really sick of contemporary fantasy literature. And I ended up digging around on some websites that found that we're talking about like classic fantasy literature. And they, even though there was no Appendix N concept, they had a lot of stuff on the list like Moorcock and Jack Vance and Liber and Lovecraft and other and Clark Ashton Smith and other stuff. So I ended up kind of g- going back and digging through that all over the last, uh, well, starting in the late 90s and uh, since then. So I, in a weird way, I had a non-appendix and uh, course in the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And did, um, during that process, did, uh, you know, did it sort of just open your mind to this is the stuff I need to be reading at all times or, or you're still have you dived back into contemporary fantasy at, at, since then or just kind of sticking with sort of classics? No, I, I, I really uh, I find that I'm really biased to the classics. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't uh, I don't branch out a lot. I've read a little Joe Abercrombie and uh, R. Scott Baker or Baker, however you say his name. There, there are a few guys here and there, but um, uh, no, I'm I'm pretty pretty heavily centered on the the old stuff because and there's so much of it I haven't read, so you know mm-hmm. there's no shortage of it. I'm not going to run right. out. Right, and uh, that brings us to this week's book, which is kind of an oddity. Uh, it's a little bit hard to find. It's uh, the Shadow People by Margaret St. Clair. Uh, there was only one printing. It's a 1969 Dell paperback with a Jeffrey Catherine Jones cover. Um, anything you want to say about this one, Jeff? You want to read the back cover copy? Oh, sure. So, uh, yeah, and it's another Jeffrey Catherine Jones cover. I feel like basically every single episode, it's Jeffrey Catherine Jones. Yeah, maybe Daryl Sweet, but pretty much Jeffrey Catherine Jones. But yes, so the invasion of the hallucinogenic people from under Earth. They had existed from time immemorial, hidden in a space warp far beneath the surface of the Earth. 
Until now, their only form of nourishment had been a strange hallucinogenic grain. Now they hungered for human flesh. The earth was to be their stockyards and mankind their meat. Ellipses. Yeah. And this gives you a very sort of a uh, very swords and sorcery cover. Uh, yes. We'll later on find out if what's on the tin is what's in the book. So, uh, but before we uh, start discussing the book, how about our Hygaxian word of the week? All right. This week, our word is augury. Augury. And augury is a sign of what will happen in the future or an omen. And augury is found on page 11. Uh, and what it says here is, you remember what D.H. Lawrence said about classical augury? Um, and then they're talking later on about augurs and scrying. And uh, the reason why we chose this word this week is uh, augury is kind of one of those kind of fun words that is uh, used in place of divination. Uh, divination, augury, and scry are all words that are often kind of used in Dungeons and & Dragons. And augury is not really a word that I have personally encountered a ton outside of the world of D&D. And it felt like such a D&D kind of word that I wanted to include it. There you go. So, uh, moving over into the library. So, um, what are things, uh, what was your first impression of this book, Julian? Uh, you know, I'm going to be totally honest. This is one of the Appendix N authors that I knew almost nothing about. In fact, I mostly my exposure had just been very recent with uh, Michael Curtis's Knoll House uh, free RPG right, how, Day adventure. Right, how uh, Newt sewed the rope to the Knolls, right? Her short story. Right. Right, right. Uh, which is a nice uh, little short story that's on, that available online for free, and you can easily Google and find it, and it take about ten minutes to read or less, and it's great fun. So I encourage anybody. But um, yeah, wow. Uh, you know, I knew very little about her. I thought it was a fun, um, satisfying read. I'm sure it's not going to be for everyone. <laughs> um, but you know, having said that, I. Uh, I had no idea what to expect, and in that sense, I was not disappointed. <laughs> right, and literally, and not even just from like the book as a whole, but literally from the the, the breakpoints in the book seem very strange. Right, I think. Yeah, like you know, you have this whole under Earth, under Dark quest, which you think is going to be the whole book, and it's over before it's halfway through, and then the next stage of the book is you know, onwards. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But Jeff, what did you think? Oh, I, I, I had a blast with this book. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it was written in night or is published in 1969. I don't know when it was written, but um, it takes place in Berkeley in 1969. And, you know, kind of the whole San Francisco Bay area in the late sixties is so iconic. And Margaret St. Clair was living there at the time and was very much kind of enmeshed in that culture. And that really comes through in the writing and the storytelling. It feels very kind of authentically psychedelic and very uh, kind of uh, late 60s California. It's uh, a lot of kind of hippie occultism, um, a lot of kind of uh, free and loose sexuality and kind of like fear of like um, of uh, police officers and uh, and the, the government, man. The, the, pigs, man. the man, yeah, the pigs, uh, <laughs> and all that comes through in a really kind of fun and entertaining way. the The structure of the book is a little bizarre. It it is kind of quartered. It's like the first quarter of it is like you know Dick Aldridge, his girlfriend goes missing, Carol. So he ventures into the under earth to find her. 
Um, and he does about a quarter of the way into the story and actually rescues her. But then the next quarter of the story is he's now trapped there under Earth and can't leave because he's ingested this Adderkorn. Um, and that seems like he's going to be under there for the rest of the story. But then halfway through, he is he does manage to get out. And then the whole second half of the book is kind of him above Earth at first trying to find Carol. He finds her again. And then about three quarters of the way through, they've defeated all of their enemies and then they're just kind of trying to survive in this strange nightmarish world and, and the way that the world has changed since they came back from under Earth. It's it's very it's a very strange book and a very strange structure for a story. What did you think, Hoy? Sure, sure. Um, I'm going to actually throw this at you. Did you feel it was a period piece or do you feel it's kind of timeless in some sense? I mean, certainly there's references to specifically Berkeley in, say, 1969 at the very beginning of the book and, you know, being hip and, you know, a Beatles reference or two. Um but did you feel it was kind of, uh, you know, once they get underground and once they return, does it feel, you know, dated or it feels, you know, sort of iconic in some way? I, I thought it was really odd how it seemed like a it seemed like said in 1969 in the beginning, which is when it was written, apparently, as far as I could tell. But then when but Dick goes underground and he apparently spends three years there in real above ground time. But he comes out in then, you know, around 73 or so. And it's this crazy, I mean, I know the 70s was the hangover decade, but it's like, (laughs) it's this crazy police dystopia Mm -hmm. with, you know, martial law and secret police and all that stuff. I mean, you know, there's all this paranoia and there's crime, you know, in the streets. It's, it's this weird, it's the, it's 1973 as imagined by from 1969 or something. But at one point, Carol's talking about the war and stuff, and I, I don't know. It seemed a little dislocated in time. Yeah, absolutely. It does kind of seem like they emerged in, and not in three years in the future, but it's almost as though like Dick emerged in a completely different reality in a weird way. Because uh, suddenly, like it's it's only three years have passed, but now we've got robots and we've got like holographed hologram televisions and. Not only has the landscape changed in a figurative sense, it's also changed in a literal sense because even the the Berkeley Hills have 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 are, are torn down torn and down have filled these, the San Francisco by these, Bay by these drone bulldozers, computerized bulldozers. Yeah. I almost want to say, without getting too political, it actually almost feels like of this moment, you know, in a sense. I mean, we have drone surveillance, robotics. We have, you know, mandatory identity cards. We have that, as you say, this flat screen holographic TV. Um, we have a counter-revolution or reaction going on. So it was weirdly timely when I was reading it, you know, this week and saying, hey, this feels like 20, somewhere between 2017 and, you know, 1969. It's just... Sure. I think it's how, like, you know, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, the the, the new TV show on uh, on Hulu is really resonating with a lot of people right, right now at this particular point in time. And I can see how this particular story might also resonate with people in a similar way. Mm-hmm. And... Um, did the sort of geographic specificity uh, work for you, Julian, in terms of like they're talking about the, you know, going to the Berkeley Hills or what was left of the Berkeley Hills or going out into the countryside outside of Berkeley? Um, did that did that work for you? Or is that, you know, she seems to be very spare in her, her uh, descriptions. I felt like I had some sense of the Bay Area. It maybe reminded me a little bit of um, Our Lady of Darkness by Fritz Leiber, which is also set in San Francisco. More, you know, a little more heavily, but I, I felt the Bay Area thing, at least 
in the first part, it seemed real familiar, but then, of course, when he emerges into this weird dystopia, it seemed kind of weirder. Her style was very uh, was pretty spare, which I liked, and I thought it was actually a pretty well written book. If you if you read the man who sold the rope to Knowles, you I mean her style is so a hundred percent different, 180 degrees, you get a sense of how great a writer she is because she stylistically can kind of go any direction she wants. Right. Incredibly versatile, right? There, in that case, she was doing literally Lord Dunsany, right? And here she's doing something entirely different. Somewhere in between, I think if we read a few more of her books, we'll figure out if there's a handle that we can get on her. And there's a bit of Lovecraft in here too. You know, one of my favorite moments in the entire book is on page 138, there's this one paragraph that just like rocked my world. It said, the walls of the room seemed to shake like a curtain made of painted cloth. Reality, the reality of our world was being twitched aside. In that moment, I felt, I knew that everything in the universe, galaxies, viruses, time, matter, energy, space, everything was nothing but a flimsy cover for the horrors and splendors of a vaster cosmos than ours. And these horrors and splendors were funneling down indescribably on the spot in which I stood. So good. Very yeah. good. Yeah, no, 100% agree. That's totally Lovecraft. And she just does such a good job of like really building tension and suspense. You know, there's there's the moment where um, where once Carol has been rescued and they're above ground, there's this entity who they've met below ground called the Grey Dwarf who's been menacing Dick Aldridge. And the Grey Dwarf has possessed Carl Hood, who's kind of the guy who's the whole reason Carol was kidnapped to begin with. And... Faye and Dick have Carol in the basement of Faye's apartment and they've got this like this giant circle of cord with like a circle of salt around her and candles burning and they're like they're all naked and they're like bloodletting Carol in this like ritual to like free her from like her slavery from under earth. And Carl Hood comes and he's possessed by the by the great dwarf and he's got this like magical drum and he's like trying to possess the body of Dick Aldridge. And like this scene goes on for like a a long time like it's probably like five or ten pages that we spend just kind of in this moment but like it was so like tense and and fraught right i feel like there's a real existential dread right because dick aldridge is not sure whether he'll just be a passenger in his own body or just literally expelled entirely Mm -hmm. and then where does he go after that um so there's definitely a a lot of um extension as you say lovecraftian existential dread in the story and um you know the under earth time is strange you know, it's it's fairy, right? It's it's fairy, but filtered through sort of a modern sensibility, but without being revisionist, yeah. I think, in any sense of the word. And um, one thing I thought was nice, in, in this story, we have well-written women, hmm. which yeah, is hmm. not something I, I, hmm. I, I, I haven't encountered. I've encountered some well-written women. But like here, you know, like although Carol is a victim, Carol's a very smart victim. And she's somebody who is also very frustrated about the fact that she is a victim. We've got Faye, who is from from the land of fairy. We've also just got this great little kind of uh, throwaway side character in Mrs. Uh, in Mrs. Schum- uh, Schumacher. Um, but overall, like the women, they're, they're not sexualized. They're smart. Uh, even though they are sexual beings, they're not sexual objects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I, I really liked the way that the that all the characters were written, but especially the women. What did you think about the characterizations of the, of the characters, Julian? It's so odd that you say that because the very, the weird thing to me about Jeff about that is that she chose to write it from Dick's point of view. And Dick himself is kind of a cipher, Mm -hmm. you know, 
And in fact, you almost feel like we know Carol and Faye better because he's always thinking about Carol. I would agree with that completely, yeah. You know, and then Faye is really a really well delineated. She kind of comes out the most realistic character because she's pretty tough, Mm -hmm. right? But uh, but Dick himself is like, where did I don't did he is he educated? You know, where do you go to school? What does he want? What was he going to do for a living? What you know, you don't really know a lot about him when this stuff happens to him. But you you get a feeling that he it's almost like he's this dropped in kind of generic Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, (laughs) you know, straight white guy cipher who could just be dropped on Venus or dropped in the jungle or dropped in Mars or whatever. And so now he's dropped in San Francisco, you know, and he has adventures. But, you know, but then (laughs) she's writing the world around him as a much more, uh, you know, dynamic and interesting thing. Of course, what it just kept cracking me up how he always says he or kind of he's thinking, well, Carol's my girl, you know, Carol's his girl, you know, and it was just it was uh, you could also sense she's of a an older generation probably than Dick really was because there were a few times where he would say stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, I'm not really sure that's, um, that's what the guys in 1969 were saying. I mean, they certainly had all (laughs) kinds of retrograde ideas. uh, But some of the verbal stuff was more like the forties and thirties. I thought. Right, they mm-hmm. use the word I think chambermaid in there when Faye is first introduced. Oh yes, Faye's right. the chambermaid at right, the hotel. Right, because she's she's he uh, Dick is living in a hotel at that point. Um, so, um, do you think from the way that she did this that Dick as a cipher was a, a very deliberate choice to sort of allow the reader to sort of immerse themselves and see themselves, or do you think that she just wasn't as interested in Dick? Yeah, and also I would add to that she probably also probably assumed that most of the readers of this email exactly. Right. So was that kind of a smart move or was that a missed opportunity or both? Yeah. yeah what do you think, Julie? You know, I, uh, that's just a great, that's a great question. You know, I found a quote from her online where she said, unlike most pulp writers, I have no special ambitions to make the pages of the slick magazines. I feel the pulps at their best touch a genuine folk tradition and have a balladic, you know, i.e. like a ballad quality, which the slicks lack. Hmm. So, so in that sense, I, I'll go ahoy with what you're saying that she wants to appeal to readers. The readers of the pulps are mostly male. She's interested in what she's doing and she's, pretty happy living and coloring in the lines kind of i mean superficially if if i was going to describe this book to somebody in a couple sentences it might sound kind of like an edgar rice burroughs thing or something right mm-hmm. the girl but, goes missing find her bring her back yeah you fight these weird underground elves blah 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 you rescue the girl then you have to free her from the thing you have more conflict da, da, da. but of course it's really does not read like that at all mm-hmm yeah, I think it ultimately says almost mythic quality. It feels like Orpheus going into the underworld or any of those kind of stories like that. That you know, and but that they don't come back whole, right? Not none of the characters who go into the underworld come back unchanged, which I think is is pretty important. It's not that they're you know superheroes. No, and and she she is full of classical references. She talks about Homer, of course, Orpheus. The there's a linkage to Persephone because you you know, the characters eat that adder corn and then they're, then they're linked to the underworld just the way Persephone, you know, ate the, the pomegranates. Right. And then she mm-hmm. also was bound to the underworld. So there's all these classical things. And I think, you know, she was obviously kind of educated in that tradition 
pretty pretty deeply, I would say. Mm-hmm. I think I believe that uh, I heard read somewhere that she was pretty involved in the uh, Wicca scene of that that the the 1960s. So that she was definitely bringing a, a, an informed knowledge of the occult. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, and um, I'm just going to throw here one thing. It's literally on the first page, kind of an off. As you mentioned, these sort of allusions, pretty offhand comment where uh, Dick says. I suppose this is what Kirk meant in his secret commonwealth when he spoke of their happy polity, which is speaking by the elves. And this is actually a book that was written by a Scottish uh, Presbyterian minister in the late uh, 16th century called The Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fawns, and Fairies. And it's actually still available online or um, in like inexpensive paperback editions. And it's literally uh, his accounting of the beliefs of the people of Scotland of how the fairies essentially live side by side with our communities. Um, so I, I love that you know that and that you've had this physical object in your hand right now, because really when I read it, it didn't even occur to me that this was like a real text. I just thought that like, she was just like, like making up some kind of a random reference to throw in there. I was not aware that this was actual, an actual book. Yeah. I'll definitely put it in the show notes for people to find, but it's, I'm, I'm not all the way through that, but it's interesting because they literally, they have a parallel society. It's, it's not quite human and it's not inherently evil, but it's also dangerous. Are they cannibals on drugs who are having uh, I don't know about cannibals on drugs, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about uh, people have also equated um, around this time in the late 60s. They were talking about, you know, UFO abductions and stuff like that. And a lot of people who study that say that fairy and fairy kidnappings of children are and UFOs are more or less the same thing. And it's just through the filter of what people knew, mm-hmm. you know, because um, definitely in the late 60s is when all the stuff like the Mothman and all that other stuff was happening. So, again, I think she's really... Margaret Sinclair is really tuned into something here so that it has sort of mythic resonances. Um, so what do you think about that, Julian? I just think it's amazing. I mean, she she has something she's doing in this book where she's talking about D.H. Lawrence and Homer and the book he just mentioned, uh, Kirk, if, if that was his name. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, The Secret Commonwealth. The Secret Commonwealth. That, that's – she's – really trying to it's funny that she says well i don't want to write for the slicks but she's actually bringing this pulp that she's doing into a more literary layer i would say um very clearly and i and that uh, to talk about the wicca piece of it well you know no question that she must have given a lot of thought to the the ritual that they do uh, as you mentioned jeff she really lingers on that in pretty good uh, detail um, I'm sure she researched it and studied and so on. What did you feel about the structure of uh, the return from the dystopia, return to the dystopia after this time in the under earth? That's, I think, an odd choice uh, that more than half of the book is that part of it rather than the sort of more adventurous dark fantasy part. I, I think it's interesting. I was not expecting that at all. Um, knowing what I, I, I knew very little about this story, but I, I, all that I, all that I really did know was that it was like some kind of a crazy hallucinogenic hippie fantasy where they basically go underground and encounter a bunch of like cannibalistic, um, uh, drug addled elves it was kind of basically what I knew. I was not expecting, um, futuristic robo cops called robo fuzz and robo pigs. <laughs> um, I wasn't expecting, uh, a search to get a, uh, to get ID cards and to have to worry about checkpoints and to try to deal with um, potentially CIA operatives, potentially mafia folk to get your, um, your your passes to get to Canada. I wasn't really expecting any of that kind of stuff. And it works. But one thing I think is interesting is I, I do 
appreciate Margaret St. Clair's willingness to kind of break from what's maybe um, expected from the audience. And maybe, I don't know if that's an intentional choice or if that's just kind of, she was just kind of writing authentically her, in, in, in her own way and just kind of let the story take her where it was taking her. Um, but I, I do kind of respect that she allowed for that to happen and just kind of wrote the story she was going to write. I would, I'd say it, it reminded her willingness to dive into the modern world and that, that whole thing that gets, like you're saying, identity cards, but not just that, cohabitating with Faye and sort of the mundane stuff about the relationship and cooking and trying to scrounge by on one income for a while and all that stuff. It reminded me kind of of like Ursula Le Guin, if you've ever read her, who you know, does a lot of science fiction stuff, but never totally loses touch with what, how people actually eat, how, how they live, you know, some of that politics and the real world and what's going on what it's like to live in that society type thing. Yeah, that's true. Cause I would say the shadow people really is a very, it's a very kind of human experience, you know, because what they're going through, I, you know, I, it does seem like maybe Dick has this idealized idea of who Carol is and why he wants to save her. Um, but ultimately, the, the the actual reality of it is never quite like that, um, because even when he does save her, he can't have her initially. And then when he comes back, she's gone. And she's just kind of like this empty kind of drug addicted shell of who he fell in love with. But even before he discovers that, he spends months just kind of like shacked up with Faye. And for both of them, it's just kind of a it's it's, it's a convenient arrangement. It becomes sexual and they enjoy each other's company. But like, there's no great romance there. And then ultimately, when he decides to to go and start looking for Carol again, because he's now kind of in a position where he can do that, um, you can tell like, you know, Faye's like, maybe her ego's hurt a little bit, but there's it's no great loss of, it's no, you know, she didn't lose a great love in this moment. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Faye's the strongest character in many ways, as, as you talked about earlier, Julian, that she's so well characterized in her wants, her needs, her irritability at, at, uh, you know, Dick's sort of, you know, obliviousness in some cases really is. In a very relatable way. I yeah. mean, they live in a very, very scary world. I also really like the way that Margaret St. Clair writes the world before they go into uh, the underworld too, though. Because like her, her sense of kind of wonder and marvel talking about Berkeley in the 60s, where like at any moment you could find like a Shetland pony sitting in like a VW bus with like, uh, shiny bubbles floating by and like this that's just like the reality of 1969 in the Berkeley area and I like how she talks about how like they're not hippies but like from our perspective like they're definitely hippies um, <laughs> and I, I think it's kind of funny when she talks about the hate ashbury and how like for Bohemia it, it doesn't have enough bookstores or something like that <laughs> uh, so you, you can tell like that's perhaps Margaret St. Clair's own opinion of San Francisco over Berkeley uh, but her her kind of uh, it, her experience really shines through the page and makes it feel very authentic. Mm-hmm. So, Julian, I think that uh, you and I are probably roughly the same age, and we probably would have come just after this experience. But the people around us would have lived through this experience. Did you feel that mm-hmm. it had the resonances uh, to you know you as a younger gamer, or, or just uh, having lived to sort of at the tail end of that era? Yeah, I mean, I definitely. It seemed pretty authentic to me that what she describes was, you know, I was born in 1970, but I grew up, my mom was only 20 years older than me. So she 
was born in 1915. She was a teenager in the 60s. My dad was only a few years older. And, you know, I grew up, they were in their 20s in the 70s. So I grew up around all, all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I would say it it, it has a, that pretty bohemian, hippie-ish type of thing. Um, I was not anywhere near the Bay Area, but um, certainly saw plenty of that type of thing. And yeah, it rings pretty true. Um, 73 didn't turn out to be the great robo-fuzz dystopia, exactly. <laughs> I'd say that started more around the election of Ronald Reagan, but, um, <laughs> you know, so be it. It's weird how is she still thinks that's around the corner, though. Yeah. Right. That's true. So one thing that's interesting about Margaret St. Clair's The Shadow People is on the Appendix N, this is one of the titles that is specifically stated. It's not one of those, go ahead and check out Margaret St. Clair. All of her stuff is just good. No, he specifically says, read The Shadow People. So I guess our question is, why is The Shadow People considered to be a specific named title on the Appendix N? Why do we think that this book um, uh, shaped Gary Gygax's uh, vision of OD&D or AD&D and or why he might think that's something that we should read for inspiration for our own gaming. And uh, Hoy, I'm going to throw this to you first. What do you think are some 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 reasons that might be included so right, explicitly? Right. Uh, well, the obvious thing is sort of the underdark, underearth, you mm-hmm. know, that would later become, you know, Vault of the Drow um, in that series. But I think the idea of sort of dark weirdness sort of entering into an environment that is essentially not like instantaneously lethal, but essentially hostile, essentially alien. Um, what could be more dungeon like than that? Right. Mm-hmm. Although there's no treasure to be found. Um, this weird substance that will help you survive this adder corn, which this is basically this barley with this red fungus on it. That it's both semi nutritious, but also hallucinogenic and since there's no protein involved, and if you're all you're doing is just eating this adicorn underground, eventually you'll become starved of protein, and then you'll maybe will tend to become more cannibalistic because you just start starved of protein. Um, I think all that sort of environmental danger is a strong factor in D and D nowadays. We tend to think of it just being, you know, find the monster, here's the challenge, here's the encounter. But you know, O D and D, and certainly A D and D, was very much about the danger of the environment uh, of of basically essentially being um, pioneers into this, you know, dark space. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's there. Uh, certainly this is magic sword, which is very, um, there's Merlin's sword, which is very much a, uh, one of the more memorable magic swords. And actually in, in, you know, maybe not quite the level of Stormbringer in the Michael Moorcock books, but it's got a sort of a personality of its own. And it's one of many magical items right. in this, in this story. Yeah. Uh, there's ultimately the Glane, which is mm-hmm. this, this thing, you know, which kept on getting mentioned as being a product, uh, a piece of something that belonged to Merlin and we don't really find out what it does until the very end. Yeah. It's like a protective talisman. Yeah. Um, and the various charms and spells that they cast at various points in the story. And the gray dwarfs drums. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the actual journey, the beginning when Richard is actually has Faye has pointed Richard the way to eventually go find Carol. And he is basically going through a series of basements and sewers and tunnels. And he just keeps on squeezing through smaller and smaller spaces until he ultimately sort of leaves our world and enters this under under dark, as they call it. Which uh, I really liked. Mm-hmm. I thought it, it really kind of brought like a nice Narnia quality to the entrance into a dungeon. 
And I know that in our gaming, you can have a magical entrance to a dungeon. We have those things all the time. But I don't really feel like I have really encountered anybody kind of giving it kind of a more kind of whimsical Narnia type. Like, particularly in this story, what's happening is essentially Dick Aldridge has to kind of like, he's like smelling for this like draft and like following this draft. And like by, by doing this, it's taking him from cellar to cellar to cellar. But he's not really, but their sellers aren't really, it doesn't seem like they're actually linked or connected in any kind of physical way. He's kind of like pushing himself between little pocket dimensions, essentially. And I think if you wanted to like kind of find a way to work that into your gaming, where you really have to kind of get into like the right mental state in order to move through a series of obstacles to get into the dungeon, I think that would be a particularly interesting way to get uh, to start an adventure. Sure, sure. Um, Julian, what did you take away from like why this was included and, and, and then ultimately how it w- would work in gaming? Well, I, I think, um, I think you kind of nailed it, Hoy, with the, with the talking about this sort of underground adventure, you know, part of it. I mean, it, that's pretty obvious. I won't belabor mm-hmm. it too much, but that whole, uh, you know, hacking through enemies, exploring underground, um, there were parts that really shocked me in how D&D-ish they were. Like he comes, there's three entrances and there's an elf standing in front of each one waiting to fight him <laughs> if he should advance. And and some of that stuff was, was actually, of course, the whole thing in a lot of ways was kind of poetic in the sense of it didn't sometimes always really make sense in a sort of linear common sense type fashion but it made a lot of dream logic at times. And a lot of the underworld thing, if he would have woke up halfway through or at the end or something, I wouldn't have actually felt that cheated because it was so weird. Um, Anyway, but I'll say the other thing that really uh, cracked me up, and I don't know if you guys thought this at all, but the glane at the end, as you alluded to, um, struck me when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's a blank spell or a blur spell or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a displacer beast thing, right? It's mm-hmm. it's actually makes you really, it's because it's like reflecting, reflecting light, refracting light, excuse me. It's actually making you hard to hit and stuff because it was um, shifting your image around and stuff. That, that struck me as something he might have uh, adopted. Yeah, and I kind of want to build on one thing you mentioned as well, because you were saying that you know the under it's it's like the under earth um, or rather um, the underdark, but uh, but you you use the word weird, and one thing I'm really enjoying about one thing I really enjoyed about reading the Shadow People is how it does have a lot of those D and D elements, but it's much much weirder than it is in kind of your kind of traditional D and D sense. You know, I, you look at underdark, and I feel like oftentimes. It, it's just kind of like a city or a dungeon, but just a really big one uh, that's just kind of in a dark with some with some evil creatures in it. Where here, what they were calling the other world or the under earth, it really it was it was it was far more kind of foreign and strange, and you weren't quite aware of what the rules were at any given moment. And I think that is a real kind of strength of this story, and also. You know, I know you hear in Dungeon Crawl Classics circles, people talking about like making things weird. And there's often this like tradition of like, how do you make things like elves weird? You know, this idea of like not not assuming that all elves are kind of the Tolkien elves. And here the elves, um, in some ways, some of these elves are very much Dungeons and Dragons elves. They live long lives. They have dark vision. um, And, 
you know, with DCC, they, they also have a problem with iron and here they're, they're, they're like allergic and freaked out by steel. Uh, but then also these ones here, they're silent, they're cannibals. They um, have these different varieties. Some are green, some are black, some are gray. It's, uh, it's mentioned that they don't have bones. Um, and, and it's never really clear exactly what they look like. Are they small? Are they human sized? And, you know, there are green ones, black ones and gray ones, but it's not even my impression that they look green because what's his face? Carl Hood is a green elf, but um, he pass just, for human, right? He's he just looks like surface. a dude. Right. Oh, well, I think specifically they say the green elves can pass for human. And these other ones are various types. And but, it's almost like but more, what makes that a green elf? That's what I'm curious. Like that, that, right. That's so interesting to me. I guess they're more like tribes or, or they fill certain roles. Yeah. It feels, I guess it's of a piece of maybe um, similar to um, Planet of the Apes. You know, you have the orangutans do this role and the chimpanzees do this role. And mm-hmm. it's sort of contemporary. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do like in this book that, uh, again, nobody's unchanged from their contact with the weird. But Carol yes. comes back and she's basically drug addicted and basically has PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, Dick basically finds out that both Dick and Faye have some element of elven blood. And we find that the elves are sort of, are they truly supernatural? Are they parallel evolution? What is it? Well, um, and also we determined that if you have the last name Eldridge, then right. you actually are of elf blood because right. Aldridge comes from Eldritch, which comes from Elfish. Right. So if you're listening and your last name is Aldridge, just be aware that if you send your DNA off to the Mormons to get tested, right. you're probably going to find a little bit of elven blood right. in there. And then Faye, for obvious reasons, is quite it's Faye. Faye. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was one thing that that, uh, on that yeah, <laughs> but that was one thing that bugged me though. It's like. Oftentimes, Dick would come to Faye and Faye would just uncannily have this information about stuff, but he didn't really seem to question her enough about it. It's like, you know, he'd be like, oh, um, I can't find my girlfriend. She's like, oh, well, maybe she's not on the skin of the earth anymore. And it's like, what does that what? mean? Yeah, what? Like, exactly. No. And, and then he comes back and, and, and she's like, oh, what are you doing with Merlin's sword? And he's like, oh, I found it in the under earth. But he should have asked, like, why do you know this is Merlin's sword? Like, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> there, There is something – that's what I meant by dream logic. Like, how does how does he run across Faye? I mean, there's like four characters in this book. So you would think <laughs> that – and they all are somehow connected to the Underearth, right? And none of them start mm-hmm. out having any connection. But he just mentions it and she's like, well, you know, maybe she is underground in the elves. And he's like, what? And so, somehow they all know, which is – that's very much like a dream. Like, you know, yeah. the people the people say something which doesn't make sense. And then you find out, of course, that it does make sense because what, they, what your subconscious made them say turns out is – points you at where your dream goes right and you're exactly right you don't have tend to have a cast of millions in your dreams it's a lot of times you're sort of recasting people that you've seen in your daily life into these other roles um so you're right about the sort of dream logic and again it would be really interesting later on as we go through this project when we read a couple more margaret st Clair books to see again what is the thread if anything that ties all her works together sure and and her style you know as you said the, the short story uh, about the Knowles is completely different style. And I forget which of you said that the, the characters never really recover from their touch with the weird, but I, the setting in the book itself never recovers from it. The moment hmm. we go under earth and we encounter the elves and the Adderkorn and all of this stuff, nothing is the same ever. Like, there, there's no going home. There's nothing is normal again from that point forward. Even when they come back to earth, everything is different and really, really strange. I wonder if that's a product of... Like California, in a sense, you know, like California is 
sort of always constantly reinventing itself in a way that many other parts of the United States are not. You okay. know, we, you know, we're here in New York, uh, Jeff and I, so New York has deep roots historically and it feels sort of very rooted. And uh, Julian, you're in the Midwest, which, you know, is typically the image of the salt of the earth. So I wonder if this is that that informs how she was doing things in a sense. Oh, I feel, I don't know. I, I just feel like New York is a completely different city every 20 years though. Yeah. But there's, I think some continuities that, you know, maybe out the West coast, you know, it's, we don't feel as mm-hmm. when we head, head out there. Um, but anyway, I don't know. What, what do you think about that, Julian? I'm an honorable or not an honorable at all, <clears throat> but an honorary, <laughs> an honorary New Yorker, maybe the honorable judge a, Julian. Yes. Thank you. I, I have a <laughs> lot of friends out that way and I get out there a fair amount and I love New York city and I, you know, I grew up reading Marvel comics. I felt like I lived there even before I'd ever been, you know, um, I, when I got there, I looked up trying to find Spider-Man, you know, walking around Manhattan. So I always <laughs> felt kind of like I knew the city and it, to me, it feels like, um, like you say, Hoy, that it's very rooted. Um, things change, of course, you know, because of the money and because of all that stuff. But, you know, I, I haven't spent enough time in the West Coast to, you know, dipped into San Francisco a little few times, but to really have a have a sense of that as much. I, I'm a, over here in the in the heartland, as they say, but I will mention right now, I do live just two blocks away from Aldridge Avenue. Ooh. Watch out for your basement. <laughs> Make sure that door that door's locked. If you have any Japanese screens blocking the walls, you might want to move those out now. Behind them, yeah, they're not going to protect you, Julian. (laughs) So, yeah, and um, looking at, I've got a little list here of things, and another thing that I feel like probably comes right from here is half elves, because I've not yet encountered half elves in any other story, and we learn that that's what Faye is. Which is and, why her nipples Richard, are so tiny. For that matter, I guess, right? I guess, but we don't know if, if Richard has tiny nipples. That's true. <laughs> but they keep bringing up how tiny how tiny uh, Faye's nipples are, and apparently that's because she's a half elf. I'm right. not quite sure what the connection is, but um, uh. I think she said they did say that one of the reasons they kidnapped human women was so they could nurse the elves, and then and he said maybe that's the, the reason that the elven women couldn't do it is because they all had you know small nipples and couldn't produce enough milk. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's one thing I, is, what's, what's interesting about the, um, I don't know, about, I guess, just how different the culture was at the time, too, is she's so matter of fact in her writing with that kind of stuff that, like, it's not really, it doesn't seem like she's being kind of silly or infantile or weird. It's just because she's just kind of stating, like, oh, yep, this is just another fact about Faye and Maybe it's because of her elven heritage. Where I feel like in contemporary writing, maybe we wouldn't think too much about nipple size in terms of <laughs> how it relates to your elven blood. I don't think a man would would have written that because a, a, a man, a straight man, would be so uptight because always thinking about breasts, always thinking about breasts, always. And then he was like, I can't write about breasts. I can't write about breasts. I can't like, <laughs> because you're so uptight about it. He would never do that. Whereas of course, Margaret St. Clair doesn't care in the slightest, right? Like what? They're just breasts. You know what? Half the, <laughs> half the population has them, right? It's nothing. It's not like that weird actually. Exactly. If I'm going to feature a rug completely made out of elf scalps, then I can also talk about nipples. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, ambushing elves for hot dog for package of hot dogs. Oh, and yeah. that scene was great. <laughs> Actually, I really enjoyed the whole little hot dog moment too, because in, in uh, when you feed solely on Adderkorn, you do eventually go into uh, like protein starvation. 
And there's this moment where, yeah, Dick is emerging. Uh, he's ready to go back into the world and he decides to rob an elf of his hot dog package. And like eventually, like, yeah, he finds this elf. He steals his hot dogs. But like, what was the part that I, oh, yeah, it said, I thought I could taste sunlight in them, blue skies, green grass. And although like later on, she like describes it as like, what is it? A clammy cylinder of protein. Um, I still just thought that was really kind of cool. The idea of tasting like grass and uh, sunlight in this like clammy hot dog. Right, right. So Julian, what do you think that you uh, would take to your gaming, if anything, out of this book? Um, just flavor, specific incidents and, and objects? What, what, what would appeal to you from a gaming sense? I felt like I could totally run a party i could run a whole session and maybe tons of sessions just just uh pretty much on the same basis you go down here you see a bunch of uh, first of all you you go through the whole call of cthulhu-ish type of exploring through these cellars and sub basements and fitting through these cracks you could spend hours just putting people through those rings and then they go down in this thing and they meet these people they call them elves they're not really they're not tolkien elves but you know, whatever. And you, you, I felt like you could lift the, in that entire thing. You could seriously run. This is what we would have done Hoy, when we were teenagers, right? We would have, we would have just lifted the whole thing and run people through that world. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's what me and my friends would have done. We said, Oh, that's cool. I can, you know, I'll just make people do that stuff, you know? And then they would have, you know, stuff would have happened and whatever. But I you, I think it, you could run that as a kind of a sandboxy type adventure pretty easily with almost right. zero prep. Mm -hmm. Let me follow up on that, Julian. So you have um, a book called Nowhere City Nights, which is a noir hack of DCC, if, if I'm characterizing that correctly. Is that, is sure. that correct? Sure. Yeah. So, so then in that is in essence a modern day hack of DCC. Would you then take Shadow People as a modern day uh, going into this or would you do it as a traditional fantasy or you know six of one half dozen of the other what would you, your approach in that case and I would also build on to that uh, Julian also um, is the writer of MCC adventure number one hive of the overmind and there's also probably stuff you could take from the second half of the story and, and port into MCC so oh, with all yeah. of that in mind what, what would be your response to all of that Oh gosh, I hadn't made any MCC connection there yet, Jeff. But that's a that's a really cool. I have to flip that around a few times to really get there. But um, in terms of Nowhere City Hoy, um, I would be entirely okay to use it for kind of straight regular DCC or for a Nowhere City game. I think it would be a really cool. F it would be more fun and more weird and interesting to do it in nowhere city or some kind of contemporary version of that, or even in just kind of a regular call Cthulhu type game. Mm -hmm. Cause I, I I've had a thought always that I want to, I love call of Cthulhu. It's a fun game, but I'd almost rather not have the Lovecraftian mythos as written. Cause it's, you know how it is. People just know that stuff so well. Right. So I'm always it's looking for Yeah. Yeah, and and so I'm always looking for some weirdness that put pe put people back on their heels and be like, what the? Yeah, I think that would definitely and and uh, if we're playing a modern game, we would tend to feel a little bit more vulnerable because we would relate those characters more to ourselves. Whereas when we're in a sort of swords and sorcery fantasy, we have our mighty feud warriors or our magic users and stuff like that, so we feel like the weird wouldn't necessarily be as weird to them. I guess maybe in some sense. Yeah. What I thought was kind of neat about this story as well is, you know, they talk about the underworld, they talk about the world we live in, but then there's also this kind of overworld, which they refer to as both upper space or the macrocosmos. 
And even the Merlin sword has these like three, I forget how it's described, but there are these three things that are on the hilt that I I thought were uh, supposed to uh, be symbolic for Middle Earth, upper or the, the upper space, and then this under Earth. And, you know, looking at the planes in AD&D, because that is a thing that they've discussed in AD&D, if, if the three worlds are the under Earth, the Middle Earth, and like I guess this kind of like overworld, um, I think it's kind of interesting that the under Earth is something that's kind of so it's accessible, but it's not. You know, you can find it through caves or you can kind of follow your intuition to these cellars and get there. Um, I, I, I wonder if that's kind of a, a, another way to kind of look at the planes and your like your D&D or your kind of role playing games in general, where like maybe you don't have to create a portal that allows you to transfer to these different planes. Like you can just find kind of a way within your own world to kind of shift your energies from this one world to this other. Uh, I, all I can say is I love uh, the great connection you're making between somehow very again, Narnia, it's possible to physically just go from this place in through this weird portal that just looks totally normal and into a whole different world. And it sort of makes sense and it sort of doesn't make sense, but it's capital W weird. Mm -hmm. Um, You just brought a thought of me and maybe it's reiterating this. As you go, the under earth is really weird, but it's essentially very material. And then we get to our earth where it's a little bit more cerebral. We Mm -hmm. can actually think because basically elves are not depicted as really thinking. They're sort of just like these things that, you know, eat the adder corn, prey on each other. They can't Mm -hmm. cooperate or do anything like that. So it's very like gross and material. It's like clay. And and actually, Carol is described as being like plasticine or clay-like when he yes, first discovers her. Correct. Yeah. And then it's our world, and then the macrocosmos is not spiritual, but it's not comprehensible. It's above the level of us being able to comprehend. So it's almost like, you know, that whole thing about you know dimensions. Like you know, as a three-dimensional beings, we can we can live in four dimensions. We yes. Can, uh, you know, perceive stuff that's two-dimensional, but we can't really perceive the fourth dimension we can't move you know or the fifth dimension or higher dimensions mm-hmm. and so this is kind of i think what this you know this going from the inside of a you know an acorn out you know or a oh, that's that ball out yeah hmm. yeah hmm. um i don't know what you can game or do with that but it just made me just made me think of that you know maybe but really mess with people's heads when they go into other dimensions they could go to these lower dimensions and sort of get a handle on it but when they start going to the upper dimensions, they, you know, people become fractalized or yeah. something like that. They're not really even, you know, humans anymore or whatever. And another thought I had that's um, that's not connected to that, but um, is but but kind of is is this the way that augury and divination works in in this in the shadow people? Because you know, in in, in traditional Dungeons and Dragons stuff, when you when you're divining, you actually are seeing into the future, or you're actually scrying upon another area. But with in this story, that's not true. When you do augury or scrying, what you're really doing is you're finding the answers to the things that you already know on some level. Um, you, you look into a crystal ball so that you can find a message within yourself. Or there's one moment where she shares an example of apparently there was some augur who would um, watch the birds fly in the sky to find out that the, the direction that the birds were flying in his heart or something like that. And that also might be something that'd be kind of interesting to kind of work into a, a, a setting of some sort where uh, where d- divination definitely does exist. But what it does is it allows you to access information that you already have on some on some level. That's a good mm. one. So it's not mm. predestination, but it allows you to give extra information. Yeah. 
And that also kind of, I think, makes space for, because sometimes in, in role-playing games, it's hard to work in divination because we don't know what the future is going to be because of player agency. Right. Because anything can those change. Those damn players. Yeah, so, exactly, <laughs> those damn players. So if instead you make it about, about accessing information that you have on some kind of subconscious level, then I think that that can make it um, something that can work in your games a little more neatly. I don't know. It's hmm. an idea that's hmm. that's unformed. No, it's no, it's actually brilliant, Jeff, because it gets at a, a a cardinal rule of GMing, right? Which is if you give, you can almost predict the future if you give the players more information, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so just like you say, yeah. So um, we're kind of we're, we're running short on time. I'm curious before we wrap up, is there anything about the shadow people, Julian, that you really wanted to discuss before we wrapped up? Uh, you know, nothing really, except to I just would say that uh, I was not very aware of her, except for like I mentioned the little Michael Curtis stuff prior, and uh, that I'd read and looking through the free RPG Day adventure and so on. And I really enjoyed it. I'd encourage you, if you're listening to this podcast, I don't know if we've uh, really intrigued you or maybe frightened you away, but <laughs> it, but like many Appendix N books, it's a it's not a long read, and it's really worthwhile. I I think you will, um, if you if you take this book up, you'll get a really unique experience that's relevant to to D and D, and yet really, I mean, guys, I would say it's. You know, when you read Burroughs, Zelazny, Liber, you know, even Vance, Howard, you know, th- there's kind of a sameness, right? They're, they're all unique. They all have their unique voices and so on. This is pretty different. This is pretty different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Without so, doubt. So, Julian, you and I are on Spellburn with Jen Brinkman. I've got the Appendix N book club. Jen Brinkman is on Sanctum Secorum, which is also an Appendix N podcast. So uh, to let our listeners know, when are you going to start your Appendix N podcast? I'm going to do a <laughs> I'm going to do a podcast in which I read poetry and we will we'll talk about how poems relate to RPGs. Versifying D D. Well, I think there's actually well, potential uh, there. Yeah. I like it. Uh, Appendix P. Appendix P. P. <laughs> and, and Julian, before we wrap up, uh, we do have um, you've you've got a new product that uh, that's that's just coming out now. Would you like to take a moment to plug it? Sure. Uh, thank you. I've got a new adventure for Nowhere City Nights, which is a uh, it's an event. It's a funnel adventure, which means you're all zero level. You have you know, multiple zero level characters, and you're going through a crazy reality TV obstacle course underground, of course. And uh, the sorcerer cult, and one of the sorcerer cults in Nowhere City has actually kidnapped a bunch of civilians and is trying to put these uh, hapless civilians through their paces to uh, sort of weed them out and have a big PvP battle at the end and then take whoever survives and make him an initiate worthy of joining their sorcerer cult. Now, whether the characters go along with this scheme or all die in the midst of the adventure or whatever is, of course, up to the, the players. Um, but it's, you know, a short adventure. It's meant to be played in four hours or less and uh, available in PDF on DriveThruRPG and on Lulu. Uh, it's called Outlive, Outsmart, Outkill. Nice. Right. Looking forward to a new uh, take on D- playing that D- take of DCC soon at some point. All right. Uh, okay. So uh, uh, next week we'll be uh, reading uh, Clark Ashen Smith, Zothique. 
And after that will be H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness and Other Tales of Terror. If you uh, are kind enough to uh, listen, uh, rate us on iTunes, it would really help people discover the podcast. If you want to email us, you can do it at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at appendix underscore n. We've also got a website. You can check us out at appendixnbookclub.com. Or if you would like to join us in person and come to one of our Brooklyn meetups, uh, check out meetup.com slash DCCNYC. Hey, thank you for being on, Julian, and we'll see you in the stacks. Thanks, guys. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>